Let me welcome all of you to Uplift. My name is Kyle. Uh, this message is also going to be streamed on Sunday mornings for our online Bible class called uh, The Conversation. We're in a teaching series. We're still making resolutions here at Uplift, and our series is called Four Resolutions. Four. Tonight is the third one. We've already made a couple of resolutions. Our first one from Mark chapter 1, verse 1, was that I resolved to believe the gospel. The second from Mark chapter two, Mark chapter one, verses two through eight, is I resolved to join the way of the Lord. Those are the first two resolutions. I shared a quote with you about Mark a couple of weeks ago, and I'm going to keep referencing this quote. It's from New Testament scholar Howard Key, who wrote that the Gospel of Mark is just a rather ordinary piece of literature. It's not like anything that had ever been written before tells the story of the birth of Christianity in a really simple, organic way. There are stories of dinners and farmers and and lots of family drama. And and Key, Howard Key, kind of set this against other origin stories of other religious movements and said, you know, this one sticks out because it's not really extravagant. You would assume it would be. It's not, and I think it's uh, it's a really great perspective. That's why I thought we would start the year speaking from Mark, because Mark wrote this gospel to Jesus, about Jesus, to people who endured unmentionable and gruesome horrors in the midst of Roman persecution. It seemed quite hopeless for believers in the city of Rome, and in spite and in the midst of this contest of suffering, Mark believed that the gospel about Jesus was sufficient, and he wrote this story about Jesus to those people. That's why I think it's pretty relevant. When you kind of fine-tune it and you know why it was written, it really makes a lot of sense. I think that you and I still experience a lot of hurt and pain, and I think the gospel of Mark can get us through that. What Mark proposes from this section of his gospel, from Mark chapter 1, and specifically for this message from Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, where we're going to find our third resolution, is an increasing amount of intensity. All of these messages, you can find them on our YouTube channel or on our podcast, they build in intensity, and this one is going to do the same. So what we're going to do is we're going to begin by reading our text from Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. It's in your printed order of worship. It's also going to be on our screen. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son with you. I am well pleased. Now, in those three verses, you probably, if you've done Bible reading plans, you might have glossed right over them, but I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to show you, there is some extraordinary information in those three verses. So much of it is completely unexpected as well from what we kind of consider to be a rather germane story about Jesus's life. So what we're going to do the next few minutes is we're going to learn about Jesus, what Mark tells us about Jesus. And there are three items here. There are three, three things about Jesus we're going to find out. And I'm going to tell you, I'm just going to kind of give you a teaser. They're probably going to surprise you. And I hope that, I hope that's the case, whether you are a novice believer or you've been a believer for years, whether you are a seeker or a doubter, these things are going to surprise you. And that Mark would even claim these things about Jesus 
to me, makes them more believable, not less. And at the end of those three, I want us to make our third resolution together based upon what we learn about Jesus. So let's just get started. First thing we learn about Jesus is this. We learn where Jesus is from, where Jesus is from. Now, Mark begins, and he began his gospel with some pretty big propositions. Let's kind of walk through them real succinctly, all right? So the first is that he hijacked this, this word gospel. It was a Roman political propaganda term, and he hijacked it, and he called this entire writing a gospel. First person to ever do anything like that. The word gospel had been used before in the New Testament, but it had never, ever in the history of the world been used to refer to a piece of literature. So what Mark is proposing right from the very first sentence is that gospel Gospel is only reserved for Jesus. It's not about some government policy or imperial decision. Now, that's the first big proposition. The second one is this, that in the following verses, verses 2 and 3 and following, Mark wove together a tapestry of three Old Testament passages. And in those passages, he used those to to, um, announce the arrival of a messenger. And in that, he says that there is a new path that is going to be built in the wilderness. It's all right there. So Mark is kind of laying the framework that something big and bold is going to happen, but it's also going to be brand new. It's not going to be refab. It's brand new, and it's going to be built in a world of uncertainty and desolation. So in those first few verses, Mark has already kind of set the bar really high for the story he's going to write about Jesus. It's so it's, it's, it's huge, and you've got these great sort of expectations of what's going to happen, but instead what we find something completely different. With that big introduction, brand new gospel, brand new piece of literature, messengers that are going to build and forge a path in the, in the wilderness, something brand new, this is how Mark introduces Jesus. Verse 9 from chapter 1. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth, Nazareth of Galilee. Now, I'm going to just tell you, it's a little bit shocking to see that Jesus' entrance into this story after this big introduction is so mundane, so ordinary, actually, even more so, probably anticlimactic. Listen, it's important to note here that people who are reading the Gospel of Mark, Matthew and Luke and John had not yet been written. Nothing existed. These people who read the Gospel of Mark for the first time may have not had any idea about Jesus' virgin conception and birth. Had no, probably didn't even know it. So when Mark tells about Jesus, this is what he says. It's pretty anticlimactic. This is the first book ever written about Jesus. You would probably assume that Jesus would get some glitz and glamour, maybe a dazzling introduction, but it just didn't happen. In fact, it's important for us to notice who's actually gathered here in this space around John the Baptist. And this is from just a few verses before. This is Mark chapter 1, verse 5. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, to John the Baptist, and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So what we have here kind of set the stage is a crowd of people from all over the country from cities and towns and villages. And what Mark does is says that Jesus just kind of appears from this crowd. He just kind of walks out. And, and, and from this crowd of gatherers in the wilderness, 
Jesus shows up. You ever seen a red carpet? I want to show you a picture of this. Let me talk about red carpets for a minute, all right? Very first red carpet, modern history, 1821. It was rolled out for President James Monroe after he got off of a riverboat in South Carolina. First time it ever happened in America. In the early 1900s, red carpets were used for luxury rail cars. And in 1922, with the movie Robin Hood, it was the first time it was ever used in Hollywood. Red carpets are a big deal. They're, they're reserved for elite people and celebrities. But I'm showing you this because this is not what Jesus got in the Gospel of Mark. No red carpet treatment at all. No fanfare here. Nothing. Instead, Mark just wrote that Jesus appeared from this crowd of gatherers in the wilderness. And more than that, his only distinguishing introduction was where he came from. He came from the town of Nazareth in the region of Galilee. And the way Mark wrote this, the way he wrote it, Jesus is just a simple man from a tiny, obscure town. This town's so obscure, by the way, that Nazareth probably had less than 500 residents, and it wasn't mentioned outside of the Bible for another 100 years. Wasn't even mentioned. It was evidently so unknown that Mark felt the need to qualify the town by identifying its region. It's Nazareth in Galilee. And in fact, Mark is so astounded by Jesus' origin that Four times in the Gospel of Mark, Mark reminded his readers that Jesus was from this small, one-stoplight town of Nazareth. That's where he's from. Mark did not want his readers to forget, remember, suffering believers in Rome, that Jesus was just like them. He was just like them. Mark included nothing about Jesus' miraculous conception, Nothing about his birth in a manger, not a long genealogy to prove his ancestral worth. All Mark told us was where Jesus came from. It's the Son of God from a no-name town. And again, this is probably not what you would pick for the entrance of God's anointed. It's just an ordinary introduction. That's the first thing we learn about Jesus. Here's the second thing. We learn what Jesus did. Now, let's read the entirety of Mark chapter 1, verses 9 again. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. There we are. Jesus appeared from the crowd in the wilderness to do one thing here, and that was to be baptized. That's why he shows up. Now, we're going to do a little bit of teaching here in the next few minutes because I think this is important. And, I, and, I, and I'm just going to kind of tell you this before we get into it because what we discover here is that Jesus did not experience the same baptism that everyone else experienced there. It was not ordinary. It wasn't like the baptisms that had already occurred in the Jordan River as experienced by those in the, in the crowds. Now, let me just kind of take a pause. I've said a lot hear about the original languages of the Bible, and I need to make a really big disclaimer. I'm not a linguistic expert. I'm just not. I know enough to be dangerous, but that's about it. I do like the original meanings of the words used by the writers in the New Testament. I'm a guy that wants to get to the bottom of things. 
That's what I do, and I even do it here. And listen, I don't do that because I distrust our English translations. I trust them. They're good. They're robust. The Bible in your hands, you can trust it. I promise you. But often, for the sake of printing and publishing and readability, translators are presented with a pretty tough job. Pretty tough job. So what they do is they they look at the Greek text. There are a bunch of them, by the way. And then they decipher and delineate that down to a translation that's readable and that's easy to publish. And these simpler translations are, they're, they're miraculous. We've come to faith through these translations. But I want to kind of pull the curtain back a little bit on this and specifically show you what Jesus' baptism looks like. Let me show you this. Now, our English translations say this about the baptisms in this section of Scripture. Let's show you Mark chapter 1, verse 5. In all the country of Judea, and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the River Jordan. It's probably more than likely what your English translation says. Here's Jesus' baptism a few verses later in chapter 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, there's nothing really surprising there, nothing that's really going to get our attention until we examine the original language that Mark used in these verses. In fact, Mark actually used two different Greek words to describe these baptisms. Two of them. I'm going to include these in my translation, and you're going to see the difference. This is Mark chapter 1, verse 5, with one of the words. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. That's the first one. But it's a different one in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John into the Jordan. Those are two different Greek words. The crowd, Mark wrote, was baptized in the Jordan. And Jesus, Mark wrote, was baptized into the Jordan. Two different words. In fact, here are the words that he used. If you want to, you can write these down. In Mark chapter 1, verse 5, the Greek word is en, E-N. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 9, the word is eis, E-I-S. E-N is translated in, E-I-S is translated into. Now, don't want to be too technical. Here's the question. Why, why the difference? Because that's what I wanted to know. What's going on? Why are there two different words? Because Mark could have used the same word for both. He could have. Mark's not one to make you guess, though. So with these two different words, Mark is saying that Jesus' baptism is different than the baptisms of the crowd. The people were baptized in the Jordan, and that suggests location. But Jesus was baptized into the Jordan, and that suggests transformation. In other words, the crowd, they were only there for the moment. They refused. They did not abandon themselves to the radical message of repentance that John was preaching. But Jesus knew this moment, and he knew something about this moment for him. For this baptism was truly a baptism of repentance. Listen, Jesus didn't baptize, and he wasn't baptized for the repentance of sin. Jesus was perfect. He didn't sin. But he's there for repentance, and this is what he was. He was repenting 
from participation in the evilness of the world and the culture and the structures of the world. That's what he was repenting from. And in other words, he's saying, I'm not going to live this way anymore. I am not going to abide by the structures of this evil. I'm not doing it. In fact, you see this in Paul's writings. Look at this, Galatians chapter one, starting in verse three. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse four. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from what? From the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. By the way, Galatians may very well have been the very first New Testament book ever written. So here in these two first books, You've got the same idea. And look, it's easy. And we've kind of been taught this, that Paul, Paul's meant, uh, Paul, Paul was trying to describe Jesus' giving as meaning his death. And that's easy to say, and you could say that, but I'm going to say that, that Jesus' giving encompassed his entire life. And this moment, his baptism into something different was this gift of repentance from participation in what Paul called the present evil age. He said, I'm not going to do this anymore. In fact, it was so radical that this present evil age killed him because he turned his back on it. That's what Jesus' baptism was. And by the way, what Mark is saying is that by being the only one baptized into the Jordan River, Jesus alone submitted to this repentance. That's what he's saying. In other words, new things are here. New life has begun. It can't be stopped. This is what Jesus did. And here's the third thing that we learn about Jesus. Who he is. This is what we learn. Who he is. Mark tells us. We're going to start in verse 10. Mark chapter 1, verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, Jesus comes out of the water. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven in verse 11, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. I got a picture to show you. It's going to go along with a memory. You probably know exactly where this picture is from. It's from a movie in 1981 called Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Maybe the greatest movie ever made. Maybe. It was released one of the best-known films of the modern era, and there's a particular scene in this film. By the way, this is not a spoiler alert. If you've not seen this movie, I'm just going to say to you, I'm so sorry that you've not seen this movie. But I'm going to tell you how it ends, and I'm not going to apologize for that. (laughs) In the last part of this movie, right, if you've not seen it, the Nazis have the Ark of the Covenant, and Indiana Jones and Marion Ravenwood, they're there, and they're going to experience the power of God. That's what the Nazis are after. They want the power of God. So they have this huge moment on this island, and they tie Indiana Jones and Marion Ravenwood up. They tie them up, and the bad guys open the Ark of the Covenant. And from that moment, the, the spirits come out of the, of the Ark. You know what? They kill all the bad guys. In this famous scene, Indiana Jones tells Marion to close her eyes and they're saved. Don't know why that happens, but as a kid, I loved it. That's what happens. Now, at the end of all this, though, and this is the, one of the final scenes, the sky 
opens up and there is this huge funnel of flames and spirits that go straight up into the clouds. Now, I'm going to tell you that every time I read this passage in Mark, I think about this movie every single time because I, I need some sort of visualization and this is what I see. This is what I see. Something extraordinary happened in this movie. The power of God, the avenging power of God completed his work. And all of these things conspire to transform the sky. That's what happened. That's what happened. Now, this to me is what I think Jesus saw. It's what I think he saw. I mean, he comes up out of the water. By the way, Mark says only Jesus saw this. It doesn't say that the, the crowd saw any of this. But he comes up out of the water and he looks up and the sky is severed. All right? It's severed. And it's not necessarily uh, torn open. But the Greek word there actually means that it's ripped into two pieces. That's what the word means. Something, some great hands, I'm just using imagination, has reached into the sky and ripped it apart. And from that rip, the spirit descends on Jesus. That's what happens. Now, this is, let me just be honest, if we read it a million times, you're not going to get it. But if you're reading it for the first time, this is terrifying. This is a terrifying and unexpected piece of information Mark gives us right here. Jesus, as being read by the first few readers of this gospel, is this man from a no-name town, and he joins this crowd to be baptized. And as far as we know, according to the readers who read this for the first time, he's, he comes up out of the water, sees the skies being completely transformed. That's a big deal. Now, the point of this, the point of this dramatic moment, you know it, something's changed here. What is torn apart, it can't be patched, and it can't be put back together the way it was. It cannot be returned to its former state. Here's the cool thing about this gospel. This is not the only time Mark wrote something being ripped. Not the only time. Let's fast forward to the end of this gospel, Mark chapter 15. It's the moment of Jesus's death. Now, in Mark chapter 15, verse 37, let me show you this. Mark described Jesus' death like this. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. Here's what happens immediately following Jesus' death in the narrative of the gospel of Mark, verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain of the temple ripped apart the very moment that Jesus breathed his last. Now, let's talk about this curtain for a minute, all right? There were 13 curtains in the temple during Jesus's death. They all hid various parts, but only one mattered, only one mattered, and it was indicated here with the definite article. It's the curtain of the temple. Not just any curtain, it's the. Josephus was a first century Jewish historian. He was a priest. And he wrote that the temple in Jesus's day, literally, we get this straight out of history from Jesus's era. This curtain was a microcosm of creation. It told the story of creation and, or the temple, the temple was. And the temple was divided into three parts. There was the outer parts, which represented the sea and the land. But the third part the interior, the most holy place, this is what Josephus called it. He called this a heaven. This is what everybody called it, a heaven 
peculiar to God. So the curtain that, that ripped was hiding the heaven where only God lived. The most holy place, it was the residence of God's very presence in the world. And listen, every good Jewish person knew this. And the curtain to which Mark referred, it shielded this most holy place from the rest of the temple. By all accounts, this curtain was a stunning piece of artistry. Josephus describes it. It was woven with white and blue and purple and scarlet fabrics. Each of those colors represented the four elements from which the world was created, earth, air, water, and fire. But get this, y'all, get this. Embroidered into the curtain itself, according to Josephus, was a panorama of the heavens. At Jesus' baptism, the heavens were torn. And at Jesus' death, the heavens were torn. What's fascinating is that Mark used the same verb to describe what happened to both. And he only uses this word two times in his gospel, and it's referred to the ripping of the heavens. The entire energy of these verses is almost cinematic. I mean, this young man with no parental heritage, he's just a face in the crowd, but he's the son of God. And he assumes this role and responsibility with a determination unmatched by anyone else in the world. And his resolve is validated and the world will never be the same. Listen, Mark wrote these words as an apologetic to those who suffered, those who were chased by pain and regret and hurt and oppression. He wrote these words to people like you and me with wins that are forgotten and losses that can't be lost. But listen, these verses, not a pep talk, y'all. They're not a parable. You and I are not like Jesus. We are those in the crowd. That's who we are. That's who we are. We show up with good intentions to a life-changing moment, but we aren't fully baptized into the repentance that's required. We can't do that without the help of Jesus. Only Jesus can do that within his own power. You and I, we're imperfect. I don't want you to see Mark's words as a metaphor, as a teaching tale that you can go from anonymity to the divine. That's not what it is. What Mark is saying, what I want us to see is Jesus, because that's what Mark is doing. Look at Jesus here. Look at this guy, this amazing son of God. Look at him. Mark exalts Jesus. He begins his book with this extraordinary man, the son of God, who can and will endure all that will come after and at him after this moment. He, after the moment that he turns from the present evil age and he forges a new path, a new way in the wilderness, only Jesus can endure all this. Only he can. And what I want us to do here is I want us to believe in Jesus. In fact, this is the third resolution that I resolve to believe in Jesus, because only he, as evidenced here, only Jesus, in the words of the Hebrew writer, only Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Only Jesus can do these things. And with his help, 
We can follow him. 